بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وصلى الله وسلم وبارك على سيدنا ومولانا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم اللهم علمنا ما ينفعنا وانفعنا بما علمتنا وزدنا من فضلك علما وتعليما إنك على كل شيء قدير وبعد الحمد لله This is lesson 54 in the radiant light covering the Medinan period of the seerah of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wa Alihi Wasallam and in the past few weeks we've been speaking about how the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam began laying the foundations for Darul Islam in the city of Al Madinatul Munawwara. And we mentioned and discussed how he began establishing these foundations and laying them through three main actions. Number one was the construction of the masjid. Number two was establishing the bond of brotherhood between the muhajirun and the ansar. And the third was by drawing up a legal document known as the mithaq or the Kitab or the Sahifa of Medina, which was something like a peace treaty or a legal document that defined the way of life between the Muslims themselves as a community, as well as the nature of their relations with the other communities in Medina, notably the Jews and their three tribes. So we mentioned before that priority number one was to establish the masjid, the house of Allah. That was priority number one upon migrating to Medina. After that came the strengthening of the bonds between the Muhajirun and the Ansar. But at the same time, we shouldn't think of it as solely sequential, where one is done and then the other, because we do have narrations which indicate the construction of the masjid was still going on as the Prophet ﷺ joined the Muhajirun and the Ansar together in a pact of brotherhood. But these are three somewhat successive steps taken to solidify the religious and the social and the political foundations of Darul Islam, Al Madinatul Munawwara. We spoke at some length last week about this pact, this treaty, this legal document that was drawn up and signed by the Prophet ﷺ and the Muslims and their tribes and the Jewish tribes. And we noted that there have always been some significant differences of opinion among the historians and hadith scholars and researchers concerning the nature of this document. Is it a single document or is it multiple documents collated, presented as a single document? It's most likely the case that it's two documents that are drawn together and presented to us as a single document. There's also a question about the authenticity of this document or documents because all of the narrations are mursal and we noted that these expedient narrations where the, main, the transmitter is omitted. In this case, they're still sound because 
collectively they are strengthened and they're also supported by certain verses of the Quran and certain other sound hadith. We also mentioned the question about when it was written and there's some controversy about that. There are those who say that it was written in the earliest days establishing the community and then there are some who say that the mithaq of Medina was drawn up after the battle of Badr. Now we take the view that it was, in, it was earlier than Badr and it took place very early on in the founding of the community. And last week we read some, most of the main articles of that mithaq showing the rules and the agreements and the nature of the relationship between the Muslims among themselves and the other communities. We noted that a lot of the articles pertain to how Muslims are to be among themselves in matters of solidarity, uh, blood money, retribution, and things like that. There are also many articles that concern the relationship of the Muslim community to the Jewish tribes and the Jewish tribes to the Muslim community in matters of peace and war and support and sponsorship. And then there were general matters that applied to every community in Medina, Muslim and non-Muslim alike. And we talk about this pact and we go into some detail about it because it is important to understand it as it will be violated very soon. It will be violated. The signatories to this document will betray the trust. They will violate the treaty that they signed. So we need to understand a little bit about the nature of the treaty that was violated and who violated it and why and what came as a result. So before we talk a little bit about that, setting the stage for the early period of Medina, I want to make a couple of remarks about the nature of this document. And I was alluding to some of these towards the tail end of last week's class, but due to the lack of time, I wasn't able to really flesh out some of those details. And I think it's really important to talk about how we understand the mithaq of Medina as a document and certain contemporary modern misunderstandings concerning this document. Now, there are some modern Muslims who suggest that the Mithaq of Medina, that written document, represents the very first constitution written in human history. They say it represents the first formal political document enshrining universal rights for all of the citizens. So they frame it in a very particular way and they back project certain modern understandings onto this document. And some of them go even further and they say that not only was it the first constitution, but it was also the basis on which other constitutions and modern day nation states base their constitutions, which is, it's absurd. It's not true at all. So I wanted to look at that a little bit because that's coming from a kind of inferiority complex and a back projection onto the seerah. Consider the following. We cannot use the mithaq of Medina to argue that the city of Medina founded by the Prophet was a secular 
liberal democracy. We cannot use the mithaq to argue this. How can that be when the democratic process itself can demand putting aside explicit legal commands of Allah and His Messenger? If the people all decide to vote to make halal haram or haram halal, if it's put to the vote, it's enacted and enshrined in law. So how can you say the mithaq is a constitution that is representing the earliest form of a secular liberal democracy when that entails that the collective vote could conceivably vote out the commands of Allah and His Messenger It's absurd. So the problem is that people are looking at secular liberal democracy as a kind of default human aspiration to which all humans naturally aspire and because they're influenced by certain modernist ideas, they want to assume that the mithaq is a model of this natural human aspiration. So what they're doing is they're taking this ideal that they have received through uh, modern education and their own worldview that they have uh, absorbed from the world around them. They assume that is the model to which all humans must naturally aspire. And because it is the embodiment of what is absolute best for humans, they back project that onto the seerah and assume that that must also be what was enshrined in the mithaq of Medina. And this is a fallacy. In fact, it's a collection of fallacies because the authority of the Prophet is based on the fact that he is Rasulullah. He is the messenger of Allah and he has a mission from Allah. And what he says becomes law because he has that authority given to him by Allah Ta'ala. It's not on the authority of the Prophet ﷺ is not on the basis of a pluralistic political order. That's not the basis of his authority. His authority is not on the basis of popular support and being elected to office. His, the basis of his authority is wahi, it's revelation. And when you look at the mithaq of Medina, who is involved in this? Of course, the muhajirun and the ansar are involved. They're mentioned in the document, but it also involves the Jews, the three Jewish tribes in Medina. The Jewish tribes in Medina did not elect the Prophet ﷺ to any political office in Medina. They did not choose him to be their ruler. Yet he is dictating the terms of the treaty between the Muslim community and them because his authority is not attained through the ballot box. It was through divine authority. He wasn't elected. They could never choose to hold elections to vote out the Prophet ﷺ. So if people want to say that the, the Mithaq of Medina was a constitution, establishing Medina as a pluralistic political order, we have to ask them, what if the governed wanted someone else in power? Could they hold elections and vote the Prophet out? Absolutely not. That wasn't even an option because the authority of the Prophet was not and is not and never will be subject to veto power or subject to a vote. That's the reality. There's no term limits for the authority of the Prophet There's none of that.
Likewise, when we look at the mithaq, we see there are certain rulings that pertain to the family unit, the relations between clans and tribes, and regulations, ahkam, pertaining to uh, sponsorship, and regulations pertaining to commerce. And we find also in the seerah and in the Qur'an and the sunnah that very soon after the mithaq was drawn up, there are other rulings being revealed in the Qur'an and being expressed by the Prophet ﷺ that are basically abrogating and changing some of the terms to that initial document, right? So if the mithaq was a constitution, which is a set of laws or principles enshrined to govern the society, if it's an eternal constitution, a kind of binding document to guide the community forever, then every new law revealed in the Qur'an or from the Prophet ﷺ would be de- deemed a kind of amendment or a violation of that constitution. But that's absurd. It's not the case. So what this means is that there is no secular interpretation that can ignore, that can understand the mithaq while ignoring the role of the Prophet ﷺ as the authority of society without vote, without elections, without the ballot box. There's no way you can interpret the mithaq through a secular framework and also understand these changes. If it was the constitution, this enshrined as the eternal document guiding the society forevermore, why did it get changed by subsequent rulings being revealed? Why didn't it receive the kind of attention constitution of the scholars give to the constitution of their respective nations? We don't find that kind of attention given to the mithaq as is given to, say, the U.S. Constitution by constitutionalist scholars, because it was not an eternal document that enshrined principles that would exist forevermore. It was a political document establishing authority in the very beginning, open to change and amendment over time, as Allah continued to reveal verses detailing the Sharia. So. What it teaches us and shows us is that from the very beginning, as the Prophet ﷺ set the foundation for the society, of course he's building the masjid, that's the spiritual foundation, the social foundation as well. He establishes the pact of brotherhood between the Muhajirun and the Ansar, that is again the, the social strengthening. And then we have this mithaq, which is a political document. What it shows us is the Prophet ﷺ was willing and eager to secure a broad peace among all of the people in society by honoring treaties. We also see from this document that from day one, the Prophet ﷺ prefers the way of diplomacy. He prefers the way of diplomacy over conflict. If forced to choose between diplomacy or conflict, he would always choose diplomacy because that is the best way when you have a choice between the two. And this document shows that he was about establishing positive ties and diplomacy, but it was on the terms 
of revelation on the terms of him being Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam. So it's important to discuss this because it defined the political arrangement uh, in the early days of Medina. It defined the relationship between the Muslims and these Jewish tribes. And it's how we frame and understand the conflicts that would soon arise. It has to be understood in light of what these tribes agreed to as being signatories to this document, right? He made this agreement with these tribes. It was written. It guaranteed their consent, his consent and their freedom to practice their religion. He extended protection to their lives and their wealth and forbade the Muslims from infringing against those things or attacking them. And there were certain conditions that they had to uphold as well. Those conditions were the Jewish tribes agreed to uphold the cost of war as long as they are fighting alongside of the Muslims. This is before the jizya tax was revealed. So they are agreeing to also contribute to the cost of war should an outside force come to attack the Muslim community. They will be partners with them. They will also contribute financially and work as a whole community to uh, push out those aggressors. They agreed to this. This is before the jizya. And in these early days, it was understood that in the event of such a conflict, those Jewish tribes would share any uh, ghana'im, any spoils of war that they captured, and they would contribute to the cost of the war effort. They agreed to this. In that, con in that contract or pact, they also agreed that they could not make unilateral decisions about war with other people outside of Medina, other tribes or peoples, and nor could they take allies from the enemies of the Ummah of the Prophet So this document established the political authority of the Prophet in Medina, and it was meant to ensure the peace and safety of everyone in the society. We find in the Seerah that not only did the Prophet seek to establish these ties through this document, but he also wrote up treaties of alliance with neighboring tribes outside of this area in order to expand the area of peace and safety. So you have Medina, you have the areas where the Jewish tribes live on the outskirts and outside of that, and you even have examples in the seerah of treaties being drawn up with other tribes in the broader area outside of Medina so that anywhere in Medina and outside peace and safety and security would be the norm. We have for example a narration in the Musnad of Imam Ahmad from Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas radiallahu anhu. He says that when the messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam arrived in Medina the tribe of Juhayna came to him and said, you've settled among us, so please write a pact between us so we can come out to you and you can ensure our safety. So the Prophet ﷺ drew up a pact with them and alhamdulillah that tribe later on became Muslim entirely. But in those early days, they weren't even Muslim. But they sought that treaty and the Prophet ﷺ welcomed those treaties and signed them.
so that peace and security and safety would be the norm, not just in the immediate city, but in the surrounding areas as well. So after describing this mithaq and the terms and the signatories, we understand the background for the hostilities that would soon rise among these tribes. So these three Jewish tribes, they accepted the mithaq. Did they accept the mithaq out of iman and conviction? No. They accepted it for political reasons, not out of faith. When we look at their attitudes, we see that very few of them could accept the idea that Allah would send as his final prophet and messenger to humanity one who is not from them. So their own bigotry prevented them from believing in the Prophet So the treaty was signed by these tribes. We know that in Medina there are five major groups before the Muhajirun came after the Prophet We have among the Arabs the two major tribes known as the who? The Aus and the Khazraj. We have those who were more commerce-minded and those who were more agricultural-minded. And we've spoken at length about the hostilities between these two tribes and the long fighting and civil war between them and the peace that was made after the Battle of Bu'ayth. But these are the two tribes among the Arabs of Medina. We also have three Jewish tribes. We have Banu Banu Nadir, Banu Qaynuqa, and Banu Qurayza. So we want to talk a little bit about, we've talked about the Aus and the Khazraj because they become the Ansar, right? And now you have the Muhajirun coming. So you, have, you kind of have three groups of Arabs at this point. Aus, Khazraj, collectively are the Ansar. And then you have those of Mecca who are the Muhajirun. Three groups of Arabs and then three tribes among the Jews. We want to talk a little bit about these three Jewish tribes. Who are Banu Nadir, Banu Qaynuqa, and Banu Quraidha? How did they get there? How did they think about it? Because like, the Jews, Banu Israel, are not Arabs. Ethnically, they're not Arabs. They are from the line, not from the line of Ismail, السلام, but from the line of Ishaq. Ethnically, they're not Arabs. Sayyidina Ismail السلام, I mean, you could say to an extent that there is Arab DNA or blood there, at least from that line, because of the early Al-Arab Al-Ba'idah, the extinct Arabs, right? But between Ismail and Ishaq, Ismail lived on and him and his progeny became known as the Musta'arab, the, the Arabized Arabs. So Bani Israel, they're not, they're not Arabs. So how did they end up as three tribes living in the Hijaz of all places, which is today, what do we call that region? People call it Saudi Arabia. It's 
the Arabian Peninsula. So how do they get there? So in our early discussion and study in the Meccan period of the Sirah, we were talking about the religions that existed in Arabia prior to the birth of the Prophet And we mentioned that Judaism found its way into Arabia through certain Jewish immigrants that left the Al-Aradi Al-Muqaddasa or Al-Ard Al-Muqaddasa who left in exile twice. So historically there's two major exiles, some suggest three, some say even more. There's a lot of uh, discussion about the nature of how the Jewish tribes or the Jewish peoples ended up in Arabia and in different parts of Arabia. But famously in the books of Sirah they mention this that there was two major exiles. You have the first which occurred after the destruction of the Temple of Solomon by Nebuchadnezzar uh, in the year 587 before the birth of Sayyidina Isa BC. So 587 BC Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the Temple of Solomon and basically exiled the Jews who became known as the Jewish diaspora and some of those migrated to northern Arabia. This is the first known exile. The second one is said to have occurred after the Byzantine occupation of those territories by Titus in the year 70 Christian era. We don't say AD, we say Christian era. So this is 70 years after the time of Sayyidina Isa alayhi salam. So it said that Titus caused another group of them to become exiled and many of them migrated to Yathrib, some went to Khaybar, some went to Fadak and they established towns in those different regions. So these are the two main uh, groups that were exiled who are said to have made their way to what is now known as Medina. When you look at the first expulsion done by Nebuchadnezzar after he destroyed the temple of Suleiman, he expelled the Jews and they became a scattered people. They didn't all go to North Arabia. We have accounts of them going to Persia and Iraq and historians suggest that the largest number of Jews that were exiled ended up in Persia and then in Iraq. And if we look at this, this is what did we say, 587 years before the birth of Sayyidina Isa ibn Maryam. So that's 587 years. Add another 500 plus years before the birth of the Prophet Sallallahu we're looking at a, a, maybe 1100 years. So this is ancient history. So it's really hard to establish with any certainty that the tribes that settled in Yathrib came definitively from those exiled groups, right? Because it was so long ago. We don't know the exact migratory patterns. All right, so that's one view. They could, their view is that they were expelled and they settled in northern Arabia. Uh, that's likely to have been the case, but doesn't establish who went to Yathrib and why there, of all places. The most likely explanation is that the people of Yathrib, the Jewish tribes in Yathrib, 
are from the people who were expelled in the year 70 in the Christian era during the Byzantine occupation of the sacred lands. And this would have been during the time of the Fatrah, between the time of Sayyidina Isa and the birth of the Prophet There are other views that help shed some light on possible explanations as to their arrival. There's another view which says that the Jews settled in Yathrib 60 or so years after the expulsion of Titus, the Byzantine emperor. Uh, and this was another expulsion done by another emperor. They say that they fled and migrated south and eventually reached this place that was very fertile between volcanic plains but without any inhabitants. So according to this interpretation, it was another expulsion by another emperor 70 years later, Emperor Hadrian. And this Jewish community migrated southwards and they found this area to be fertile with plenty of water and date palm trees, but uninhabited. If we accept that narration, it would mean that these Jewish communities were the founders of the city of Yathrib, which came to be known as Medina. And by some accounts, they settled there, and then some of them moved to what is known as Khaybar, and they established themselves in this way. And this is, you're looking at 400 or so years, give or take, before the birth of the Prophet ﷺ, maybe less. Although the accounts mentioned that Yathrib was established about a hundred years before the birth of the Prophet ﷺ. So there's a lot of discrepancies. Another theory is that when the Jews were expelled from the sacred lands, they, a lot of them migrated south, but they went all the way south to the Yemen. And they set themselves up in Yemen and from Yemen, groups of them made their way back north and settled in a place called Yathrib. Uh, this is actually a, f a fairly reasonable interpretation of what might have happened because this, the, the largest Jewish presence in Arabia was not in Yathrib in the time of the Prophet ﷺ. It was in the Yemen. And the Prophet ﷺ sent Mu'adh bin Jabal to Yemen to give da'wah to the people and he said to him in his parting advice, You're going to a people from the people of the scripture. And even today, although less so today because of the geopolitics and the pressures to uh, get people to move to the state of Israel, but it used to be that the largest Jewish presence in Arab lands was the Jewish presence in North Yemen. Um, one of the madrasas at which I studied was about a half an hour drive from the largest Jewish community in Yemen in a place called Sa'ada and they still maintained their customs but they spoke Arabic and they dressed in their particular ways and had their own practices and you know they they still exist but they're a much smaller community today another theory is that we're looking at three different tribes and these tribes, Banu Qaynuqa, Banu Nadir, and Banu Quraidah, were three different groups that migrated to the region at different times in history. 
And this is based on the idea that Banu Israel, although they had the 12 tribes in ancient history, as a people, they weren't divided into tribes like the Arabs and others were. So they came to be known as Banu Nadir because that was a migratory group that came at a certain point in history. And either before them or after them came another group of Jews during another exile who came to be known as Banu Quraidha. And before or after them came Banu Qaynuqa. So there's three distinct Jewish groups. We call them tribes. And each of them is based on a particular time the progenitor of that group migrated or those groups migrated to what is known as Yathrib, now known as Medina. That's possible uh, because we have accounts of the Jews picking sides between the Aus and the Khazraj during the battles between them. We don't have accounts of the Jews all collectively siding with one over the other. So that would indicate that there were even hostilities among themselves. They weren't just a united front against the Arabs, but each tribe was picking its own side even if it was at the expense of another Jewish tribe. So Allah knows best. If we say that they all came from Yemen because they migrated very far south and then they made their way back north, that would be an interesting way of looking at it because who else migrated from Yemen all the way to Yathrib? If you trace the lineage, the Aus and the Khazraj trace their lineage to people who also did the same thing who migrated from the far south in the Yemen to the Yath- to Yathrib. So Allah knows best. Um, the last theory I want to mention, just to quickly debunk it, is a theory that some have put forward that these three Jewish tribes were not actually uh, ethnically Jewish, but were only religiously Jewish. This theory says that These are actually Arabs. They're ethnically Arab, but religiously Jewish, and they converted a long time ago to Judaism. That is a theory put forward by a few, but we can say that that is conclusively false, very clearly false. It is true that those Jewish tribes intermarried with some of the Arabs, but they retained the Torah, they retained Hebrew, they had rabbis among them. And if you look in the Sira accounts from the earliest period, such as the Sira of Ibn Ishaq, you find the narrations that trace the ancestry of each three group, each of the three groups back to Harun alayhi salam. So Sira accounts talk about Banu Qurayza, Banu Nadir, and Banu Qaynuqa and their progenitors and their ancestors and tracing their ancestry as far back as possible. Are these things uh, authoritative? Not really, but the understanding is that among themselves and others is that these are not Arabs who just converted to Judaism. There were some Arabs who did that, but collectively they were ethnically and religiously Jewish. But living for so long in Arabia, they came to adopt Arab, the Arabic language, certain Arab customs, Arab dress, and Arab ways of looking at things. Uh, and that's not, su- that's not surprising because any ethnic group that retains their ethnic identity and language 
will still take on the language and customs of the host society or region. That's inevitable. So they were Jewish ethnically and religiously. Now, one of the evidences we have to support this contention that they were ethnically and religiously Jewish is how they saw themselves and how they saw the Arabs in their immediate environment. These three Jewish tribes saw themselves as outsiders relative to the other, to the Arab tribes. They did not consider themselves among their own people. They looked at the Aus and the Khazraj with disdain. They called them illiterate. They called them naive. They called them vile and backward. And many of them even believed that it was permissible and okay for them to exploit their Arab neighbors. They believed that this was justified for them religiously. Allah mentions this in the Quran. This is discussed in a few passages. The most notable one is in the third chapter of the Quran, Surah Al-Imran, where Allah Ta'ala describes some of the people of the book. He says, وَمِنْ أَهْلِ الْكِتَابِ مَنْ إِنْ تَأْمَنْهُ بِقِنْطَارٍ يُؤَدِّهِ إِلَيْكِ وَمِنْهُمْ مَنْ إِنْ تَأْمَنْهُ بِدِينَارٍ لَا يُؤَدِّهِ إِلَيْكِ إِلَّا مَا دُمْتَ عَلَيْهِ قَائِمًا ذَلِكَ بِأَنَّهُمْ قَالُوا لَيْسَ عَلَيْنَا فِي الْأُمِّيِّينَ سَبِيلٌ وَيَقُولُونَ عَلَى اللَّهِ الْكَذِبُ وَهُمْ يَعْلَمُونَ Among the people of the book is he who if you entrust him with a qintar, a qintar is like a mass heap of gold. If you entrust him with a heap of gold, he'll give it back to you. And among them is he who, if you entrust him with a single coin, a single dinar, he will not give it back to you unless you keep after him. I mean, you can't just ask him once. You got to go after him and stand over him. You literally have to stand up over him and insist that he gives back the dinar. Otherwise, he won't do it. Then Allah says, that is because they say, لَيْسَ عَلَيْنَا فِي الْأُمِّيِّينَ سَبِيلٌ We are under no obligations towards the Ummiyin. Who are the Ummiyin? Now Ummi, we talked a lot about that in one of the classes. The Ummi basically means the person who doesn't read or write. But when Bani Israel are using this term, they mean Gentiles. Gentiles. Who is the Gentile? The Gentile is the, the non-Jew. So they're saying, لَيْسَ عَلَيْنَا فِي الْأُمِّيِّينَ سَبِيلٌ We have no obligation towards the Gentiles. And then Allah responds by saying, وَيَقُولُونَ عَلَى اللَّهِ الْكَذِبِ وَهُمْ يَعْلَمُونَ They utter lies about Allah and they know it. So this verse is speaking about general patterns and also it's speaking about specific people. In the science of tafsir, we know the principle, what matters is the general expression, what it's saying, and not the specific circumstances for which the verse was revealed. This verse is describing general patterns among people. It's also describing specific people. In the tafsir literature, 
we have the statements from the Sahaba which mention that the first person mentioned in this ayah man in ta'manhu biqintarin yu'addihi ilayk if you entrust him with a heap of gold he'll give it back to you they say this is referring to Abdullah ibn Salam who is Abdullah ibn Salam he is a rabbi and Jewish convert to Islam we'll talk about him uh, at the end of class today and the second person who is mentioned here if you entrust him with a dinar a single coin he will not return it unless you stand over him and insist it is said there's two opinions one says that is referring to uh, Ka'ab ibn al-Ashraf one of the Jewish tribal leaders and the other narration says it's referring to an individual known as Finhas bin Azura who was entrusted with some money and he tried to play these games and basically justify his cheating by saying you guys are, you're Gentiles you're not one of us so it's not that big of a deal so the Mufassirun who talk about this verse they say that some of the Jews of Medina would say that there's no Zulm, there's no wrongdoing if we deny the wages or cheat these Gentile, naive, illiterate Arabs. And they would then claim that this, just, this is justified in their own scriptures. Now Allah says, They utter lies against Allah. There's nowhere in the scriptures, nowhere in the Torah where it says that you can cheat people and wrong them if they are Gentiles. Nowhere. So, looking at this, the Aus and the Khazraj, we said a while ago, they also arrived from the Yemen and settled in Yathrib. And we accept most of the historical accounts which put the Jewish presence in Medina prior to the Aus and the Khazraj arriving. If the Jewish tribes were present in Yathrib before the Aus and the Khazraj came, hearkening back to what we mentioned about the tribal realities of how you establish yourself in a place where there's no military or police, the historical accounts indicate that when the Aus and the Khazraj moved northwards and settled in Yathrib, the Jews were there before them, so they entered into this clientage relationship where they became the mawali of those Jewish tribes, basically dependent and under their authority because they were there first and they were running the economy. But at some point in ancient history, the Aus and the Khazraj ended up outnumbering these Jewish tribes and the Aus and the Khazraj revolted against them and became independent of any Jewish clientage. And it, it appears from some of the earliest accounts that over time the Aus and the Khazraj ended up gaining the upper hand where those Jewish tribes also entered into a client relationship with them. So the tables turned to some extent. We also know from some of the earliest accounts that the tribes uh, among these Jewish tribes, some of them financed the Aus and some of them financed the Khazraj in the civil war between them. The Aus and the Khazraj are fighting for many years. 
over land and water rights and tribal conflicts and blood feuds. And as the wars are escalating and these battles are intensifying, we find accounts where, for example, Banu Nadir is financing the Aus on the one side and Banu Qaynuqa is financing the Khazraj on the other side. So each one is looking after their own interests based on their relationship with these tribes. So they're involved, but indirectly through financing one side or the other. We don't know if the, the Jewish tribes were actually participating in the battles, but we do know that some of them were financing one side over the other. So to get a sense of the initial reaction of these Jewish tribes who just signed this treaty, we need to understand the Qur'an as a book of seerah. Because the Qur'an is, verse after verse is revealed concurrently as these things are happening in the life of the Prophet and the lives of the Sahaba. So in this sense, the Qur'an is a book of seerah where many verses detail what was going on. And if you want to get a sense of the growing hostility among these tribes that will cause them to violate the terms, you need only read Surah Al-Baqarah to get an accurate picture. And we're going to look at some of those verses in the coming classes as we go through the timeline of the first and second year and the lead up to the Battle of Badr. But I want to conclude with a single story. So not a tafsir and not looking at any ayat right now, just a single story. And this is the story of a person we just referred to who was a very trustworthy person described in the Quran as one who, if entrusted with a heap of gold, he would return it. We said that was revealed concerning al-Sahabi, the companion, Abdullah ibn Salam, radiallahu anhu. Now his name was not always Abdullah. Does anyone know his name before Islam? His name was Husayn. Husayn. We want to make clear the difference between Husayn with a Sin and Husayn with a Sad. Two different names. Husayn with the Sin means the little handsome one. Husayn means the little inaccessible one, the one you can't reach and get to. So it's not really a positive name. That's why it was changed by the Prophet Let's look at his story. This was a young man, Husayn ibn Salam, from the tribe of Banu Qaynuqa. So he lives in Medina, and we know that he used to divide his time before the Prophet came. He would divide his time into four activities. He would spend his time in ibadah, in prayer, and teaching in their soma'a, their synagogue. He would work on his date palm grove, tending to his dates. He would irrigate and cultivate these trees, so he's also working on the land itself. And he would study the Torah on his own reflecting on its meanings. That's how he divided his day, between ibadah, study, and working on his farm, basically. So he lived in Medina, 
and these are his activities. And the hadith tells us that he describes his own situation, tells his own story, saying that he would study the Torah and he would spend a lot of time reflecting on many of the passages that mentioned, that prophesied the appearance of one who will be the seal of all of the prophets and messengers. So he would look through the Torah for these details describing this final messenger. They're awaiting the arrival of this final messenger. And he's searching for these details. What is, what is this person going to look like? What his character will be? What are his signs? And so on. So he, he tells his own conversion story. Uh, every convert has one. He tells his own. He says, when I first heard stories of the appearance of the Prophet وسلم, I sought out more information about his name, his genealogy, his qualities, and where and how he started calling others uh, to faith. And I compared what I heard about him to what was written in our scriptures, and I came to the conclusion that he is truly the final prophet. But I kept this information to myself, and I didn't share it with our rabbis and scholars. The day came when the Prophet ﷺ made hijrah from Mecca to Medina. And when he reached the town and ended his journey at Quba, a man came through the town announcing his arrival. Abdullah bin Salam says, at that time I was at the top of a palm tree of mine and I was tending to it and my aunt Khalida bint al-Hadith was seated beneath the tree. So here he is on the top of the tree, pollinating them, cutting them down, doing whatever, and she's at the bottom of the tree just hanging out. And he hears the news of the arrival of the Prophet while on top of the tree. He wasn't the only one who heard of the arrival while on a tree. We'll see that later. He says he hears the news, and he says, Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar. Now, think about this. There are Muslims already in Medina, the early converts who were there preparing the ground, Mus'ab ibn Umair, the early Ansar, right? He's hearing Allahu Akbar, right? So he says Allahu Akbar when he hears of the arrival of the Prophet His aunt, Kharida bint al-Harith, she hears the takbir and immediately associates it with Islam like everyone does. And she says, ah, what a disappointment you have become. Wallahi, if Nabiullah Musa was coming, you wouldn't have been more excited than you are now. She was very disappointed in this reaction of Abdullah bin Sadab. So he says to his aunt, I swear by Allah, he is the brother of Prophet Musa And he brings the same deen and brings the same beliefs and teaches the same things. So he said that his aunt hearing this became silent. He is a rabbi after all. He knows what he's talking about. She's not a rabbi. So he says she fell silent for a moment and then she asked him a question. Is he the one that you used to tell us would be sent to fulfill what was taught before him as a completion of the divine message? He said, yes, he is the one. So she kind of relented and said, okay. 
you do what you got to do. Because he's been talking about the Prophet ﷺ well before his arrival. Just through his own study of the Torah and the signs. So he says, continuing his story, I immediately went and sought out the Messenger of Allah ﷺ and found people crowding with each other to get to his door. So I squeezed myself between them until I came close to him. And the first thing I heard him say, so the first words he's hearing from the blessed mouth of Rasulullah is the following hadith. Ya ayyuhan nas, O people, ufshu salam, spread the greetings of peace, wa'at'imu ta'am, and feed the hungry, wa'sallu bil-layli wa'nasu niyam, and pray in the night while people are sleeping, tadkhulul jannah bi salam. You enter paradise in a state of peace and well-being. These are the first words he hears from the Prophet ﷺ. He says, I carefully studied his face. Because his face is from the Dala'ilun Nabuwa. His face itself is a proof of prophethood. I carefully studied his face and I came to know and realize that this is not the face of a liar. The physiognomy tells the story that this is Rasulullah I drew closer to him and I became Muslim on the spot. So there was no da'wah to him that he had to receive. He already knew. And he became Muslim on the spot. And he said the shahada and the Prophet asked him, what is your name? He said, Husayn ibn Salam. And the Prophet looked at him and said, your name is Abdullah ibn Salam now. He changed the name. Now Abdullah ibn Salam says, Yes, I swear by the one who sent you with truth, I do not wish to use any other name from this day forward. Because Hussein is inaccessible. That's not really a positive name. So the Prophet changed it. If you become a Muslim and you have your birth name, you don't have to change that name. Only if it's a bad meaning would it be changed. He says, I left the Messenger of Allah and I went home and I called my wife, my children and my relatives to become Muslim. And they all became Muslim. Even my aunt, Khalida bint al-Harith, she became Muslim. She was quite elderly. She became Muslim. And then I asked all of them to keep our conversation secret from the other Jews of the community until the time was right. And this establishes the precedence of people in sensitive situations and family context keeping their Islam secret uh, when they need to. You know, I, I deal with this not too infrequently. People in this area, you know, there are people in this general area who sometimes reach out and say uh, I want to become a Muslim but I have to keep it a secret right I know someone who is an actual monk in a monastery who secretly converted and is living as a Muslim as a monk in a monastery trying to get his way out and they, they don't have any idea that he's a Muslim so this is this still happens so he says, I returned to the Prophet ﷺ and I said to him, Ya Rasulullah, 
my, many of my people prefer lies over the truth. But I want you, Ya Rasulullah, to call their leaders and to hide me from them in one of your rooms. And I want you to ask them about my character without telling them that I have become a Muslim. Please invite them to Islam. And if they were to know that I've become Muslim, they will criticize me and they will accuse me of every fault you can imagine. They will slander me. The Messenger of Allah does just that. He puts him into one of the rooms and he summons some of the leaders of the Jewish community. They come into the house and he gives them da'wah. He describes Islam, recites the Quran, calls them to Allah, reminds them of the commonalities and how he is the fulfillment of the prophecies mentioned in the Torah. However, they begin using all sorts of false arguments to make the truth seem false, sophistry. And they continued until the Prophet ﷺ realized they're not going to become a Muslim. Now Abdullah bin Salam is telling the story. He says at this point, the Prophet ﷺ asked them, what do you say about Ibn al-Salam? Note that he didn't say Abdullah, nor did he say Hussein. He's not Hussein anymore. If he had said Abdullah, it would have been strange. They would have realized something is up. And if he said Hussein, it would have been inaccurate. And he's far from inaccuracy because the name's changed. So he just said, what do you say about Ibn al-Salam? Who's known among them. What did they say? He is a chief of ours and the son of a chief of ours. He is an eminent scholar among us. And then he questioned them, what do you think if he became a Muslim? They said he would never do that. May Allah protect him from that. And at that moment, Abdullah bin Salam comes out of the room he was hiding in and he says, oh my people, fear Allah and accept what Muhammad has brought you. I swear by Allah, you know that he is Rasulullah and you know his description in his, and his name in the Torah that is Baina Idikum that you have. I bear witness that he is Rasulullah. I believe in him and what he says. Now they look at the Prophet them. they look at him and they say, you liar. Hussein is a low person born to a low family. He's one of our ignorant people and born of an ignorant family. And they went on defaming him and slandering him until Abdullah bin Salam says to the Prophet I told you so. Most of them are ungrateful and treacherous. Look at how they are. So this gives you a sense of the early reaction among the leaders within the tribe and among some of the others. This is going to be a kind of defining moment in the relationship, unfortunately. And we have to understand it and how it started to understand the events that are going to unfold, which we discuss in the coming weeks, inshallah. Wallahu wa rasuluhu a'lam wa sallallahu wa sallam ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam.